Many of our clinicians at CEDAR also work to make a difference in the area of public policy. This is especially true with regards to the opioid epidemic. Today on Through the Trees, I speak with Blair Hubbard, a behavioral health counselor at CEDAR and national advocate for decreasing stigma around opioid addiction. Blair is involved in numerous state and national campaigns to improve patient access to care, utilize harm reduction efforts, and positively change the landscape around this public health crisis. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for CEDAR in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the CEDAR Addiction Treatment Podcast. So this is Pat Failing. I'm here on our show today uh, as part of the Through the Trees podcast. Uh, we're here at CEDAR, uh, the Center for Dependency Addiction and Rehabilitation. I'm really happy to uh, welcome to our show Blair Hubbard. Blair is a behavioral health counselor at CEDAR, and Blair is heavily involved in advocacy and trying to make a difference on a state and national level regarding the opioid epidemic. And uh, this is such a, a massive public health burden uh, that it's worth talking about. Uh, Blair, thank you for joining us on the show. Sure. Thank you for having me. So, Blair, the, I know you are involved in many different projects to try to make a difference on the opioid epidemic and policy. Tell us a little bit about this. What's what's something that you're working on on this level? Right. So right now there is a, a huge lack of options for people who are struggling with addiction, specifically opioid addiction. For someone that doesn't have financial resources or does not have insurance, they essentially have no way to receive treatment. So they are left to their own devices, which oftentimes leads to overdose or continued use. So I am um, very active in trying to get policy change around providing more treatment options. And that includes a lot of testifying down at the Capitol and a lot of bill changes. Uh, so things on a legislative level to, uh, to change some of the laws that we have in the state of Colorado? Um, not so much laws as, as um, available funding, so funding from the state level to provide better treatment options for those who are not able to currently receive it. I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest thing that, that those of us who are in advocacy work are working on currently. There have been other initiatives that are not as big, but are certainly as important. So funding, this seems like the, this is a big topic uh, closely linked with the epidemic. Correct, right. Um, I think across all levels, there is a lack of funding, and, um, and I think a lot of that comes from the society view of um, well, the stigma associated with addicts. Can you elaborate on this when we, when we use the word stigma? What do we mean? 
Right. So um, for for a long time, the idea that someone was an addict was based on a moral failing that they chose to engage in this behavior. Um, slowly but surely, I think we're coming around to, to understanding addiction better and um, are, are trying to get rid of this stigma, but it, it certainly still exists. There are a number of people that find it hard to believe that an addict can't just stop on their own. Or sure, the, the belief that they're in control and they're just making bad choices. Right, right. It's this, it's this idea that it's a moral failing. Okay. Do you get some sort of pushback from people when you when you talk on a on a state or a local level about this public health problem? Sure. Um, even within legislation, there are um, senators who continue to view this as a moral failing, um, and and I think that's where a lot of the pushback is coming from. Why these bills can't get changed when they make perfect sense um, is the, is the lack of understanding that still exists, unfortunately, about addiction. So, can you tell us a little bit about some of the specific bills and and things that are in the works? So we currently we're working on Senate Bill 40, which is the in the safe injection site. That would provide those who use drugs a place to go where they are monitored and treated, and then it would decrease significantly decrease the number of overdoses where addicts are in a park in an alley somewhere alone and they and they die from their addiction. I know that the uh, the topic of super supervised injection facilities. Uh, has been an international topic. I know that I think of Vancouver. There, mm-hmm. it's my understanding they have some uh, programs that deliver this. They do. Um, they have a, a very successful model um, called Insight, and this is where an addict can go and be monitored by med- medical professionals and be able to inject their drugs and. Not oh and and provide uh, resources for treatment. So there's there's a there's a lot of different levels on this safe injection facility that caters to a healthier lifestyle for those who are engaging in drug use. And I know this is kind of a classic example of harm reduction practices. Right. We we want people we want people to change. We also want them to survive. And and if they have a point of contact with a nurse, with a clinician, does that give them, them a better chance of gradually converting, if you will, to treatment? Absolutely. And and I think what people don't understand is that for addicts, um, being told that they need to stop or being shamed into the idea that they are are amounting to nothing, nothing because of their addiction is actually causing them to continue their use. So to be able to meet an addict where they're at and keep them safe through their use, and then yes, give them a point of contact so that when they are ready, we're we're there, we're there to help them. But you know, other than that, there's there's a lot of shame that goes in trying to get an addict to quit when when someone else is ready for them to quit. 
Sure. They, they need to come to some motivation of change internally. Right. That it's important to them. Or, I don't know, do you, I mean, would you say a sense of hope is part of this, that they could visualize a healthier life? Absolutely. Right. So a lot of times addicts will try to seek treatment for, um, for various reasons, whether it's a physical condition or even trying to um, get off of drugs or any sort of medical condition, and they typically are shamed by the medical community. And not, not only that, I mean, the, the public shames them. And so being able to have a place where you're treated um, kindly and with compassion gives an addict a sense of being worthy enough to stop using drugs. Now, it's my understanding that some of the public health initiatives for this are really trying to give the tools into the hands of primary care people. So uh, family docs, uh, internal medicine docs, maybe even OBs, uh, people who are like on the ground floor just talking to the everyday person. This warm handoff to other clinicians is, is vital, in my opinion, to someone's recovery. I think that being able to work with the multidisciplinary team is what enables the best treatment options. So it's not just one thing being focused on. It's, it's family. It is um, mental health. It's physical health. It's all of these layers of treatment that provide the best chance for an, an addict to, to be sober. So the, uh, say more about the concept of a warm handoff. Right. So a warm handoff, for instance, someone goes to the hospital and they are being treated for sepsis and need surgery, um, potentially um, heart surgery for endocarditis, rather than doing the surgery, um, giving them the antibiotics, and essentially you know, walking them to the door once their treatment is finished, and, and basically telling them good luck. A warm handoff would be an idea around treating them for endocarditis, and while they are in the hospital, having counseling come in to meet with them, having insurance, Medicaid provided, all of these different layers of providing treatment and, and care for them rather than one specific modality. So, so a whole bunch of things, like you, you, you're face-to-face with somebody who's knee-deep in addiction, and what are all the things we can add to their plan right now? We, we've got them for an emergency, uh, be it like endocarditis, I know you threw out, uh, getting them set up for Medicaid so they have some insurance, helping on a policy level that Medicaid covers substance treatment right. and that there's dedicated providers, bridging them the warm handoffs, almost like bridging them to specialty treatment that can maybe approach and get their treatment rolling, I guess. Right, absolutely. I I think um, oftentimes when addicts are treated on an emergency for an emergency reason, um, they are treated for that, and then they are told, "Good luck. You cannot use again, or you will you will die." Essentially, but um, oftentimes what happens is that they don't have the resources available to them whenever they leave the hospital. Thus, they go back to using. And so the idea of a warm handoff would be treating them for their emergency cause and then, yeah, providing them with 
counseling services and um, and like you said, Medicaid and housing. Oftentimes people need housing, um, including their family in the process, if that's what they would like, or including their social network so that they have support. It's a, a, a lot of different layers to providing them with the best chance. If you've got all of these other um, aspects involved in their treatment, that's all the more accountability they have to be able to not use again. This connects us uh, a little bit to, I know there was a national article in the New York Times, I believe, just a couple weeks ago about the state of Tennessee and injection drug users who were um, developing endocarditis, which is a a life-threatening infection on the valve, uh, very often the mitral valve, such that it starts to um, the valve starts to dissolve and, and not function as well, and then they very quickly move to either pulmonary issues or heart failure. And the dilemmas of should they operate, should they give them a new valve, and then and then what happens next? I think, um, did, what are some of your thoughts about this, Blair? This is a really hard topic for me for a number of reasons. One being that um, I have personal experience with having endocarditis, I was fortunate enough that during my stay in the hospital, I was connected with counseling services and Medicaid and housing. I think for a lot of these patients that were discussed in the article, they are treated for their endocarditis and essentially told, do not use again, and that's it. Do not use again, good luck. And oftentimes that doesn't work. And so then when they are reinfected and need surgery again, they're being told that they can't receive it. And, um, and I think that goes back to the idea of a, of a moral failing, and it's it's so much bigger than that. Oh, sure. Like, they, if they were to, now you have a new lease on life, if you were to go back to injection drug use, you're making that choice, and then all bets are off. Right. And what's happening, though, is that is being said, and that idea makes sense, but they're not being treated for all of the other reasons that they were using in the first place. So all of that, all of those reasons still exist, despite having received a new valve and being told, good luck, don't, don't use again. Sure. All that, and, you're, and are you alluding to things like severe depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, social problems, fractured families, legal problems, poverty? Absolutely. Everything right. that's all part of it. Right. So none of that is being essentially treated or discussed with professionals. And so these individuals are still suffering. They may not be suffering from their endocarditis, but they are certainly suffering from their trauma or family issues or all of the things that you just named. It's it's my opinion that our, as a public policy we are a little bit in the realm of damage control. We talk about things like endocarditis. We talk about things like overdose, and um, and that's very that's needed. I think that's wonderful. And um, the question is how to help people somewhere beyond that. Like so, we're saving lives, but we're not helping people actually recover. They're going to need more than just life-saving initiatives. Right. And, and this is where a lot of the policy change comes back around providing more funding. Um, they, you're absolutely right. They need more treatment. And more times than not, 
they're not able to receive it because they don't have insurance or they don't have financial sources. And so they are going back to and, and suffering from all of the things we just discussed because they're not able, there are no options for them. Sure. Are you aware of any states in the country that are doing some of the better jobs in helping address the opioid epidemic? I I can't be certain, but um, based on on the bit of knowledge that I've acquired recently, um, San Francisco seems to be ahead of the game, so to speak. Um, they recently just passed their bill on safe injection sites. Um, and then I believe there are some... Are they, are they the first in the country for that? I, it's my understanding that, yes, they are. And um, I believe at this point in time it's, it's just a pilot study. But, um, yes, they are the first to even initiate any sort of pilot study. And San Francisco, I know, has been pretty progressive for e- even understanding the, adiz- the disease of addiction across the board with, uh, like, Haight-Ashbury Street and... Mm-hmm. Um, some of their programs, methadone maintenance programs, a lot of things that San Francisco has offered. I'm glad you brought up the uh, methadone. I think there's a lack of understanding around medically assisted treatment, and this is more towards um, opiate addicts and the need for medication assisted treatment in order to provide, in order to help them not crave and be able to focus on becoming a member of society again. Blair, I know you mentioned MAT, which is medication-assisted treatment. Uh, This is something we talk about a lot at CEDAR, and it seems to be a a very powerful initiative for opioid users, people who are addicted to painkillers or heroin. Uh, Is this one of the topics that comes up in funding, so on a, a state or local level, access to things like this? Yes, and I think the um, the idea is that one is trading one drug for the other, and that couldn't be any more incorrect. Does that make sense? Oh, so that's the that would be like the stigma around MAT. Right. So there is a stigma around medication assisted treatment in that one is exchanging one drug for the other, and the the fact is is that it's it's so much bigger than that. They are tra- they are essentially trading one lifestyle for another and not waking up sick and not figuring out how they're going to go buy their drugs and being able to go back to school and and to work again. It's, it's trading an entire lifestyle for a healthier lifestyle. Oh, that's a, I, I like that idea. It's a lifestyle transition. Right. And so specifically, we're talking about buprenorphine medication or methadone medication? Correct. Yes. I think those are the two main um, forms of medication-assisted treatment for opiate addicts at this time. And both work in in different ways and and can be more specific to the client or the patient. Um, Right now, I know know buprenorphine is more expensive as far as insurance coverage. Medicaid covers methadone treatment, and so a lot of opiate addicts that have Medicaid, if they're lucky enough to have Medicaid, are receiving methadone maintenance for their addiction. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. 
To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. Okay, so we have, I guess, the most extreme measures of addressing the epidemic, which are overdose prevention, uh, supervised injection facilities uh, to help so that uh, preventing risk for HIV, Hep C, uh, overdose prevention. We've got some of the surgical initiatives. That's that's usually like the when things are really quite bad, heart valves, uh, very severe initiatives that way. Then let's assume we address the most ex severe stuff. We move to uh, some of the early recovery. And that's where some of the medication approaches seem to be very valuable. And then we move more towards, what would you say? What We treat with medication-assisted treatment. And then after that, it's being able to focus on why you were using in the first place. And oftentimes that, that, is, that is accomplished by meeting with a counselor and and working through a lot of the trauma or the um, issues that were the the reason that you may have started to use in the first place. Sure. So like a deeper healing? Right. Kind of like a mental, spiritual level. Yeah, like a, a sense of self-transplant. <laughs> right. <maybe. laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. I like that. <laughs> so I think some of this speaks to people are really, when when people are knee-deep, especially injection drug use, their life seems pretty miserable. Absolutely. You, you live hour to hour, and that is your life. You live hour to hour, and the hope is that during one of those hours, you do not inject yourself with a substance that is either going to kill you or infect you with HIV or hep C. There are so many levels to injection drug use that are, can be very harmful and deadly. To, to injection drug users. Now, now, Blair, I know you are working on another project through the office, Colorado Office of Behavioral Health called the Lift the Label Campaign. Right. Uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about this. This is a campaign to hopefully decrease the stigma that is associated with opioid use and, and opioid treatment, those who are receiving treatment. So the idea behind this is to educate um, le legislators and the public around the reality of opioid addiction, that we're, we're not bad people and um, we're, we're worth trying to save. Is there any sort of stigma that's within the institution of addiction treatment? I know we, you mentioned things about medication approaches. Is there, that sometimes gets stigma too, I believe. Oh, it does, and it's really unfortunate. But there is um, there's a there's a model of complete abstinence-based um, recovery, and oftentimes individuals that are connected to that model will will believe that those receiving medication-assisted treatment are not in fact sober. And so, even within the world of recovery, those who are trying to receive treatment and to get better using medication-assisted treatment are even shamed by others that are in recovery. That, that seems terrible. I mean, the, in right. terms of these are, uh, I think recovery is all about lifestyle, like life restoration. 
And I think you, you said that quite well. Like even if somebody could be on something like methadone or buprenorphine, if they're living a functional life and, and living a life worth living, that sounds like recovery to me. Absolutely. And, and I think that's what it comes down to, is that if, if someone could be happy and engaged in society and physically and mentally healthy, then using, using medication-assisted treatment should not even be a factor in their recovery. I mean, it, it should be in their getting better, but as far as others um, viewing their recovery, it should not even be a factor, to, in my opinion. Sure. What do you imagine seeing over the next, I don't know, two to five years? Uh, my hope is that as certain cities in, in the U.S. begin to transform their, their models of treatment and um, the way that they interact with addicts, I'm, I'm hoping that the rest of the country will, will slowly follow that. And by that, I mean um, decreasing the stigma, number one, and being able to provide harm reduction methods that keep addicts alive and that, that guide them towards treatment when they are ready. I mean, I'm, I imagine if some large cities start to experience fewer and fewer overdose deaths, like almost like they've stabilized that problem, then we can kind of draw from those cities, what are they doing right? Right. And, and you would think that would kind of be a no-brainer. And we are seeing that. We're seeing studies where, where needle exchanges are, there are less overdoses, there are decreases in cases of HIV and hep C. Um, even internationally, we are seeing that in places where harm reduction methods are utilized, the overdose rates are far less than, than here in the U.S. And then same with diseases that are associated with injection drug use. Those have decreased significantly. I, and internationally, can you uh, comment a little bit on this? What's your, your understanding of some of the countries that are doing quite well? Canada, like we had talked about earlier in, in Vancouver, they um, have the Insight, which is the safe injection facility. I know that in a lot of countries, uh, Portugal specifically, they have decriminalized um, drug use. And as a result, the drug use numbers have decreased. I, I, I don't know specific countries, but a lot in Europe have decriminalized drug use and, and not the, instead of sending addicts to jail, they're sending them to treatment. And as a result, you see less relapse, you see less overdose after one gets out of jail, um, just an overall decrease in drug use. I know Australia has been a good country for uh, things like needle exchanges and, uh, and safe practices and harm reduction. There, there was a window of time in the 1980s that Australia had either a plateau or even a slight decrease in new HIV cases, whereas the rest of the world was blowing up. And uh, so the, the thought on this was that some of their initiatives were, were working and, and really trying to help heroin users. Right. And, and it, it, I mean, honestly, it, it makes sense. You know, you provide harm reduction, you provide clean needles and sterile water and clean cookers. It, it makes sense that the, the numbers of transmitted 
HIV and Hep C cases is going to decrease. Now, I know uh, Blair, this has uh, I know this is a a personal thing for you because this has affected your life. Have you noticed a trend over the years of physicians and clinicians and them talking? Do they do people seem to know more about addiction and recovery these days than let's say a decade ago or what do you think? Absolutely. And um, speaking to my personal experience, I I needed um, hospital treatment, and this was in 2006. Um, while in the hospital, I was I was shamed a great deal by a number of the medical team. Um, through the through the this last decade or so, I have I have tried to get treatment for other symptoms related to injection drug use and again had been shamed it took me until the until 2011 after multiple attempts um, of receiving treatment from medical professionals for me to finally get a team who cared and who seemed to understand addiction a little bit better just in those what five six seven years it seems like the knowledge around addiction has um been readily available to those who work in the medical profession as well as the public, in my opinion. So that seems very positive, like that. Right. That some of these, some of these things that you're doing, advocacy, education, public policy, funding, harm reduction, it is making a difference. I think so. In yes. The, in perspectives of at least of professionals. Right. I, I don't know about uh, kind of the baseline public's views about stigma and, and some of that. Do you have any any thoughts about that? I think, and I think this is the case with a lot of um, diseases or, or things that, that we find within the medical community. Oftentimes it will take the medical population to be able to understand it and then let it trickle down from there. And I think once the public is able to hear and, and learn from the medical community, that they are more likely to to be willing to understand this and and reduce the stigma and reduce the lack of knowledge that is around addiction. Sure. I know that this, we talk about this often on our podcast. The opioid epidemic seems to me to be the number one health story that seems to be talked about every day in our right. country on journalism, publications, media reports, it's talked about by presidential addresses, and it's talked about through many different channels. So it's really front and center. Right. Well, and 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 it should be. We have we have so many people dying every day. In in the state of Colorado, there are more deaths related to opioid overdose than car accidents. I believe it's uh, the the statistics are quite startling. Uh, something in the realm of one death around the country every 15 minutes. Actually, I think it's more than that, and I can't be positive, but um, I do. I think it is. I think it's more than one at this point. Um, it's even worse. Right. It's gotten even worse, and that's the sad thing is that even through the knowledge that has been acquired over the last decade, each year the statistics are proving that the opioid epidemic is actually growing and rather than decreasing. Um, my hope is that in the next couple of years that will change, but as of right now, the number of overdeaths in 2016 were less than the number of overdeaths in 2017. I think I, my hope is that we're at the peak of it and that 
we have touched on all of these different areas that can be utilized to treat this epidemic. And now we just have to initiate them. Well, Blair, so this was very interesting. And it sounds like uh, you've been really uh, fighting a good fight in terms of uh, addressing things on an advocacy level, as well as some pressure on a policy level uh, to try to promote greater funding for addiction treatment, uh, the concept of a warm handoff. Can we get people who receive acute medical care? We mentioned things like endocarditis, other uh, overdose, HIV, and bridge those people in very well to addiction platforms. Uh, a lot of the, the evidence we have about using things like buprenorphine and methadone maintenance approaches to help people stabilize in very early recovery, and then a lot about trying to dispel stigma. What, uh, Blair, uh, do you have any final thoughts for us on our, on our interview today? Well, I appreciate you doing this podcast. I think um, the more that we can educate the public around all of these possibilities to addiction treatment, the more likely they will be utilized. And so that's my hope. That's what I fight for, is that that addicts, those that don't have a voice, I'm, I'm trying to be their voice so that they can receive what they need, whether it be treatment or medical attention. All of these different things that we've talked about, that's that's what I'm fighting for. And if, yeah, if the clinicians understand it, they can then use the tools we have at our disposal to help people and then they and then they carry an air of being welcoming to people with addiction to say come on in let's have a dialogue let's talk about this and then the 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 patients themselves will sense that right they will they're going to sense that they they their story is valuable and healing is possible right and they're worthy enough just to not be an addict well thank you very much Blair thank you for joining us on our show absolutely thank you Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering Cedar and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. Cedar the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, helping people build a life of recovery. 